We must recognize that in discussing this kind of topic, as, as we tried to build a case last night, this could be the turning point in someone's life that turns them into a major Christian reformer. This could be the preparation for someone to serve the Lord, even as a prophet. We look at Ellen White. This could be the preparation of someone even going beyond what Mother Teresa had done. Can you imagine how powerful her testimony would have been? Has she done the things she had done and she had the peace of God at the same time? But it's all marred at the end of her life. All her legacy, all those things are marred by the fact that she had this constant abandonment and loneliness in her heart. Which goes to show you, no amount of works will bring us peace. However good and however inspirational they are, people can even canonize you and make you a saint. It does not do anything. There is no replacement for Christ. Martin Luther is recorded as having preached a sermon one time. And while he was preaching his sermon, it was, he was frustrated because they had, you know, the little indulgences outside, right? You know, whenever a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs, right? This kind of stuff. So people had been hearing Luther preach, but they felt like, you know what? There was an opportunity. Maybe I can add to the gospel that Luther is preaching. So not only can I, you know, listen to the gospel and believe in Christ, but I can put my money in this coffer. And I can go to these relics, right? This is St. John's piece of his robe, right? So you go and touch the robe of St. John from Patmos and, you know, you'll get some blessing from there. In India, they believe they have the tomb of Thomas. Uh, they believe in the Middle East that Daniel is buried there. So Muslims and Christians and Jews all fight over this space. So you're thinking all these concepts were going on. And Luther came to that service that day and he had to preach. And he said, steps away from the podium, which is very abnormal for a priest to do. You ever seen a Catholic church, right? They have the little uh, lectern all the way sold it up like above the congregation. So Luther doesn't preach from there. He preaches on the floor with the congregation. And as he steps away from his podium, he's clearly moved by something. And they describe the experiences. Luther comes and he says, listen. He says, you turn to relics, you pay your money. You think you have to do this penance and climb up this innumerable amounts of stairs self-flagellate yourself when all along there is Christ. Right there, you just have to go to him. Why is it that we have to add to what Jesus does? It is sufficient. If it's not sufficient, then why did he die? Jesus didn't come down to pay 90% of the bill. Work out the other 10%. Thanks, God, I can't even fill the 10%. Amen. But Luther is looking at me and says, you can't add to the sacrifice of Christ. He says, you drop your coin in that coffer, you're saying his sacrifice is insufficient. You go and touch that relic, and these people are sitting there so moved by the fact that for us, it seems so basic. It seems so assumed. But the reality is we don't have relics anymore, right? We don't have places to go to touch St. John's garments. Or this was the Bible that Daniel had in Babylon. All these other relics that we're like, oh, wow, you know, I'm going to get a blessing from this because this thing is sanctified, set aside by God. But we do have our own modern relics as well. You think because you woke up and read your Bible this morning that recommended you to God. Some of us think because we pray for two hours rather than the normal 30 minutes, right? You sound like the Pharisee in the temple. I thank you, Lord, that I pray two hours, unlike the 30 minutes that these other people pray. Because I'm not like other men. The Bible says he went to his home, condemned, not justified. But he's spiritual, doing spiritual activities. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not like these other men. But the man who sat afar off and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm preaching my sermon for tonight already. But the point must remain the same. What is justification by faith? It is the laying into the dust of the glory of who? Of man. And doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. I told you, I want you to memorize this quote before you leave. This is what it is. Whatever reduces man's glory and whatever God does for you that you cannot do for yourself, then you know you are in the realm of righteousness by faith. You start preaching anything else that you can do for yourself that's not righteous by faith. It's works. You can't add. 
And God doesn't do for men what man can do for himself. Amen? Amen. This is why, you know, one of the favorite, you know, famous reverends in New York City, he used to have this saying, right? The best thing you can do for the poor is not be one of them. That's the best thing you can do. Because if you're poor, you're not helping anyone. So in, in this context, right, if I apply that to physical poverty, and it is true, the best thing you can do for the poor is not be one of them. Because if you're poor, you ain't helping anybody. You're in the same boat as me. But it applies equally to spiritual poverty. So listen, the best thing I can do for the people outside in eastern Canada is be filled with righteousness. That's the best thing I can do for them. Is to have his righteousness and as I'm living that life out sanctified. This is what's awakening the hunger in them to desire righteousness. And all they need is the hunger and thirst. And they will be filled. That's all they need. Once you have that desire that I want to live a better life, I want to do good, I want to live right by my wife, I want to be a faithful father, as soon as you have the hunger and thirsting, he says, you are blessed, you shall be filled. That's not usually our message to people. I want to begin with a story from Charles Spurgeon, but before I do that, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are about to embark upon the experience of the gospel in the Old Testament. Father, most often our highest and most severe critics use this part of the canon of Scripture to discount the blessing, the blessed love, grace, and faith, Lord, that we speak of in terms of salvation and the God whom we love and worship. We pray, Father, that you would raise up an Ebenezer today that through the reflection upon these stories, as they revealed the principles of the gospel and of righteousness by faith in the Old Testament, that Christ would be uplifted, that Jesus would be seen, that we would be drawn to him, Lord, and that we would not resist. But Father, that we may find ourselves coming before God, not just in brokenness and in contrition, but Father, in joy and in peace, in love and in excitement of living life, abiding in him. This is our prayer, Father. And we trust that you'll help this to be our experience. For we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Charles Spurgeon tells a story. Take your Bibles, turn to Genesis 3, verse 15. We're going to start with our scripture reading. Charles Spurgeon tells a story. He says there was a man who was a, a, pa a, a pastor over a, over a church in England. He remembered one day that one of his parishioners was a very poor woman and he had received several offerings in church. So he said, you know what? I remember this woman has need. I'm going to go visit her to go and help her meet her need financially. So the pastor leaves the church, locks up, heads down, you know, to uh, where she lives, knocks on the door. It's about 12 o'clock in the afternoon. What time? 12 o'clock in the afternoon. This will be important later on. So he knocks at 12 o'clock. No answer. He knocks again. No answer. He says, okay, goes back to the church. About one o'clock, the woman walks into the church. As she walks into the church, the pastor bumps into her and he says, sister, you know, this morning, God had reminded me of your need. And I'd come to your house to give you for your need. And she says, about what time did you come to my house? What time did he come? She was home at 12 o'clock. She says, oh, you know, pastor, I'm so sorry. I was actually home at 12 o'clock. The reason I didn't open the door is I thought you were the man who was calling for the rent. Because she couldn't pay. You see, in this message of this story that, that Spurgeon is trying to get across is the fact that too many times this pulpit, we wonder why people are closed to preachers, why they're not interested in church, why they're not interested in being faithful and surrendering their life to Christ, is because we got preachers knocking at the door calling for the rent of which they can never pay. Sermons are just another reiteration of something else you need to add. I remember when I first came into the church, I mean, I was studying the Bible eight, nine, ten hours a day and reading the spirit of prophecy. I had nothing else to do with my life. Because I was coming from the world, it was like, well, you want to go to the movies? No, I'm not doing that. You want to do, oh, yeah, man, we're going to a strip club? No, I'm not doing that. Hey, man, we're going to hang it? No, I'm not doing that. So at the end of the day, it was like, hey, do you want to watch this spiritualistic show? No, I'm not doing that. 
What are you going to do? Sit at home and read the Bible. I got no spiritual friends. My family is not Christian. So now I'm sitting in my room reading, reading, studying, studying. Then you go to church, right? And every Sabbath school, every sermon, right? I'm, I'm listening to these messages and it's like, oh, yeah, you know, you thought you were really vegetarian and vegan, but you need to be GMO, non-GMO. You know. <laughs> there was a time when soy milk was the cutting edge of vegetarianism. And I remember when soy milk tasted terrible. I was like, this is the nastiest stuff I've ever tasted in my life. I remember tofu was like an abomination. I was like, there's no way I can eat this stuff. But now you know you got to get non-GMO tofu. <laughs> Soy milk has too many of these coming. You need almond milk now. But now it's not almond. Oh, you need cashew milk. <laughs> then it's like, okay, well, it's not enough for you just to be vegetarian. You got to be juicing a certain amount of times. You got to know you can't mix fruits and vegetables. Who in the world put the strawberries in the salad at potluck? Because I just heard I can't eat fruits and vegetables. Then it says, well, we shouldn't add too many spices. Who made this curry for Sabbath afternoon? <laughs> Do you understand where I'm going with this? It's just another knock at the door, and people eventually say, look, you know what? I can't pay. Look, I have, I have loved ones who are struggling with cancer, trying to do it the natural way. And as I walk with these people through their experience and all these things these health people will tell them to do, take three drops of this, you know, eight blah, 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 juice in this 10, 12 times a day. How are you going to do that? You work in 10 hours. By the time you get home, you're tired. Only to find out, well, you need a $10,000 champion juicer if you really want to be a strong vegetarian. It's like, I can't afford a $10,000 juicer. Well, we'll start with the basic blender, but these kind of, you can't make these kind of smoothies. You got to have this, and you probably need a supplement to add to this. I said, before you get done with this thing, people start realizing that's just the health message. We haven't even gone into the other 28 fundamental beliefs. <laughs> so people realize, you know what? I'm shut down by the preacher. I don't want to come to church. I don't want to sit in Sabbath school. Why? Because it's just another knock at the door. And all I'm thinking is, it's the guy asking for the rent. Telling me, oh, how many of you want a soul last year? Now you feel, now I got the burden of getting a champion juicer, juicing, eating this way, and I got to win a soul on top of that, somewhere in my schedule. While I'm also, oh, don't let the family ministry people show up. You start reading quotes from Ellen White, every evening should be dedicated to family time. So how are you going to come home after working nine to five, every evening is dedicated to family time, but then you should be doing outreach at some point. So guess what day gets relegated for outreach? Sabbath. This is the life. People say this now. When do you actually rest then? Do you understand where I'm going? I'm talking to people who come to me all the time and say, Sebastian, I don't understand how I'm supposed to do all of this. Because when you're a new convert, you want to do everything. I was there. Someone told me to do something. It was like automatic. You know, you have those things when you're a kid and your, your sibling will say to you, hey, I want to ask you something, but you have to say yes. No, no, no. You got to tell me what it is first. Do you know that's how we grow in the Adventist church? Before we commit to anything, tell me what it is first. When a new convert comes, they say, just tell me, I'll do it. I'm committing before you even ask. Listen, when we got baptized in Adventist church, we had no idea what we were getting into. You did not. So... When we're talking about righteousness by faith, righteousness by faith is the third angel's message in verity. Isn't that right, George? That is the truth. I didn't say that. Sister White said that. So if that is the third angel's message, and since 1844, we are in the time of the third angel's message. What then is our message? It's not beasts and stuff falling in the ocean and how many heads does the dragon have. That's not our message. Our message is you need to depend fully upon the righteousness of Christ to become right with God. That's what the Sabbath is all about. You think you can keep 24 hours holy because you cooked your food on Friday? Because you ironed your shirt before the sunset? Because your house was clean, you're now holy for 24 hours? No. It is a sign between you and me, God says, that I sanctify you. I'll take that one amen. 
The Sabbath is a sign between us and God that he sanctifies us. You and I cannot keep 24 hours holy. We have to accept that. In and of ourselves, it is not possible. So every week, God's giving us a reminder, a test, an experience of righteousness by faith. Weekly. Your part is cook your food, iron your clothes, clean your house. That's your part. That's the human part. The next 24 hours is when I work a miracle. To remind you, 24 hours of holiness, and this is the powerful thing, right? Holiness is then not about work. Think about the association. The day that God asks us to keep holy is the day he asks us to do nothing. Interesting. (laughs) So the other six days you shall work and do all your labor. But the day I want you to keep holy, hey, just do nothing. (laughs) What do you mean? Nope, I don't want you to do any work. I don't want you to do... I want you to enter into my rest. And God didn't rest because he was tired. So he's not asking us, kill yourself for six days and pass out Sabbath afternoon. That's not keeping the Sabbath. Amen. Listen, when God created the Sabbath, that's not what he had in mind. Hey, man, work yourself to the bone, pass out Sabbath afternoon. Barely stay awake during the sermon. That's what God had envisioned for the Sabbath? No. That is not what he had in mind. So I want you to know very clearly on this Sabbath day, when we talk about righteousness by faith, Jesus is saying an Adventist preacher is the man coming to your house not to ask for the rent, but to give you the money to pay it. That's an Adventist preacher. I'm not coming to you this morning to tell you what more you need to do. I'm telling you what more Christ has done. And in case we didn't get it, we need to hear it a hundred times. Because we are always in danger of trusting to self. Dying to self is not don't eat chocolate cake after 10 o'clock. That's not dying to self. Oh, I need to die to self, man. I'm I'm struggling with chocolate cake at 10 o'clock. Who knows what you got in your hotel room right now? And we think, oh, you know what? Die to self. I should throw those chips in the trash. No, dying to self, right? Listen to this, right? Ellen White says, If we come to Christ and we confess our sins in faith, believing that he forgives us, this may properly be termed a crucifixion of self. Dying to self is casting yourself, myself, wholly on the merits of Jesus. Lord, I can't do it. That's dying to self. There is nothing in me that will help me live this life out. That's dying to self. When I sit up and say, Lord, I don't have it in me. I'm just going to come like this little boy. Did he really think he was going to feed 5,000 people with his lunch? Yes or no? No. He just said, look, I see you have a need. I'm willing to bring what I have. I know it's insufficient. I know that it's short. I know it's not going to cover. Maybe one person won't be fed by this. But I brought what I had. That's all Jesus is asking, brothers and sisters. See, I'm basically preaching tonight's sermon right now. The gospel in the gospels. We're not here to ask for the rent. We're not here to tell you, hey, add this to your health repertoire. Start doing this with your family. Listen, when I was coming into the faith, no one told me to give up hip-hop music. No one said, Sebastian, you see those half-naked women posters on your wall? You should probably take those down. Here I am studying Genesis, right? Right there is half-naked woman, half-naked woman, this hip-hop star, this pop star on my wall. It's like... How can you study the Bible in this atmosphere? Every time you look up, half-naked woman. It's like, no, I'm sitting here reading the Bible, and the Holy Spirit is like, you need to take that down. You're right, in the trash. Then the next day, I'm studying my Bible, the Holy Spirit is like, you see that CD book you got? Three, four hundred CDs, crazy music, and I start going through the CD book. Oh, yeah, DMX, nah, can't listen to that. CD after CD, I decide, you know, just throw the whole book in the trash. Don't sell it back to make money because somebody else might get that CD for, for cheaper. Put it in the trash. This is what I was doing. Then one day I'm studying my Bible. I come to my wardrobe. These are all my clubbing clothes. You know, how can you wear this, man? These big baggy jeans, right? Bright colored shirt with like a print of New York on the shirt. Like the actual city of New York. 
bright blue with mixed. I mean, it was just over the top. Lord, God wants to be humble. He wants me to be modest. I can't dress like this. No one told me. There was no GYC. There was no seminar on dress reform. The dress reform started right here. That's where it started. Because I had trusted wholly to Christ. And as I'm going through life, Jesus is like, here's another thing, Sebastian. Sounds good, Lord. Let's keep rolling. Then we keep rolling. God's like, hey, you know this right here? You're right. It's done. The thing that makes the Christian life difficult is not the lack of the grace of God. It's my lack of willingness. He starts revealing things. Nah, Lord, I ain't trying to give that up. Uh, You know, but what about? We start looking at other people in the church who are doing that, but God is using them. She watches, she reads Harry Potter. She's having a blessed time in Sabbath school. Well, you know, they're kissing in their relationship and they seem to have a good relationship. And we're not saying that because we really believe it theologically. We're saying it because we're trying to justify our position. I don't want to stop doing this. That's why we're doing this. But the reality is, I don't need to get up and give you a seminar on relationships. I need to get up and tell you, here is what Jesus has done for you. How can your response be, what's the least I can do? How? So here Christ has given everything. Life, love, all of heaven, suffering. And your response is, Lord, what's the least I can do and still go to the kingdom? The only way you could respond that way is because you don't know what Jesus has done for you. Ellen White says in Steps to Christ, she says, people think it hard to give all to Christ. She says, I'm ashamed to think it. I'm ashamed to write it. When Christ has given all for them. Do you understand what she's trying to teach us? She's trying to teach us, listen, the way is not to help people to say, oh, yeah, Let me just tell you what happens if you don't surrender. The point is to show them, look at what Christ has done for you. Look at all that he gave. You see, my job as a preacher is to fill in all. Flesh it out. This is all. Every story, every message is, this is what all means. And as we dive into that all, every time it gets deeper and deeper, you realize, what am I doing? As the man is preaching this message that he's given me the cross, he's given me the resurrection. He's showing me there is my Lord's lifeless body in the hands of Nicodemus carrying to the grave. How can I respond and be like, Lord, I just want to do what I want to do and go to heaven? Christ, like you think my lifeless body is in Nicodemus' hands so you can continue to do what you want to do? This is what sin is. Sin is here in your hands. Have you ever held your own child? Lifeless. But now think about your own mother or father in your hands. Lifeless. And you're carrying her body to a grave. And knowing your mother gave all. And your response, she didn't give all just so you could go do what you want to do. But this is what we do with Christ. The focus is saying, listen, I want to tell you that he's paid. This is what he's given. And if we will not resist, our human response will be exactly what it ought to be. How can I withhold anything from him? What could be so precious that I won't give it to Christ? And what could I care about so much that I don't trust him to manage it? To decide, to control it, to direct it. Killed half my time. Genesis 3. The Bible says, talking to the serpent, the Bible says, as he's 
giving the judgment to the serpent, he says, and I will put what? Enmity between you and the woman, he's talking to the serpent, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I want you to notice very, what's very interesting about this verse. The Bible says that God promises to the serpent that he is going to put what? Enmity. What is enmity? Enmity is hatred. So if God has to put hatred, that means hatred is not there. Are you with me? So that means when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened was not that they necessarily gained something, but they lost something. Are you following what I'm saying? I want to say that again. The very first promise that God is giving to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden after they have fallen into sin is not that I'm going to give you this. His first promise in the context of condemning the serpent is I'm going to put something that has now been removed by your sin. Because Adam and Eve sinned, they no longer have enmity with the devil. They no longer have enmity or resistance to the issues of unrighteousness. So God comes in and says, I'm going to do for you what you can never do for yourself. If God has to put enmity between you and the devil and me and the devil, what does that teach us about our condition? We are naturally aligned with Satan. We are naturally drawn to unrighteousness. I don't hate sin. Listen, the reason why we feel guilt, the reason why we struggle in the Christian life is because we're trying to figure out why do I love the things that bring me pain? That's the point of addiction. If you ever listen to a drug addict talk, the drug addict says, man, you know, I was clean for two weeks. And then one day I had a stressed out day. I was over there in the corner and I was trying to fight it. I was trying to fight it. And then I just felt defeated, man. I was lost after I smoked this thing. And I was thinking, how could I do this? I was clean for two weeks. And the funny thing is, if you didn't know they were talking about drugs, you would think they were talking about sin. The first time I heard a documentary on addiction, that's how they started the documentary. And as I was listening to it, I was like, I thought this was about drugs. I paused the movie. This guy sounds like a sinner, a guy who's come to me for counsel before. I remember when I was young in my Christian faith, the elder who brought me into the church with my baptismal classes, he used to take me on evangelism with him. Personal Bible studies, all these things. Great experience, highly recommended. If you're an elder, you should do that. He would take me to personal Bible. That's what for me, to be a Christian, I assumed it had to be evangelism. I, I couldn't be a Christian without evangelism. That was my experience. So we're going on this Bible study. There's one woman we were ministering to. And she had previously had a drug addiction. They took away her kids from her. I mean, very terrible situation. But eventually she got back on her feet. The government gave her housing, all this kind of stuff. So we were meeting with her. And while we were meeting with her, I had told her that my favorite Bible study was to give the Daniel 2 Bible study because that was the thing that started my experience. So I said, I'm really excited about this study. So she says, sounds good. So we came. I gave her the study. She was super blessed. And I left right now. I was like, man, this evangelism stuff is amazing. Like, I got to do this more often. So the elder was really excited. I was excited. We did a couple more Bible studies. I remember talking to her about heaven and what heaven was going to be like and what the Bible says about heaven. And you could just see her eyes, man. She started tearing up. And she's thinking, I don't even know if I deserve to live in a place like that. And I'm like, of course you deserve it. Because Christ died so that you could. So here she's like, you know what? I'm excited about this. I'm going to get my kids back. This, so she's really excited. One day, the following week, I'm sitting at home. She calls me at home. She calls me at home, and I can tell immediately when I answer the phone that she's crying. I said, what's wrong? She's like, well, Sebastian, you know, I did it. I went out. Some friends, some guys I just met in the neighborhood, they asked me if I wanted to come with them. I went for a ride with them. They broke out some drugs. Next thing you know, I'm sniffing cocaine again. And I said, okay. She says, I just feel so bad. I feel like I can't come back to Christ. I feel like there's nothing I can do. Like, I've gone too far. God has been so gracious to me. God has been so good to me. How could I respond like this? I feel unworthy. And I'm like, well, no, no, you're not unworthy. Now, mind you, right, I'm not even baptized yet. This is before I'm baptized. I just started reading the Bible like two months ago. So as I'm going through this experience with this woman, I'm thinking to myself, I don't have the verses to encourage her. I don't know the verses to tell her. 
So I'm trying to, you know, flip through the Bible to random passages like, well, the Bible says this in Psalm 48 and the Bible says this in I'm just trying whatever I can to. And I'm on the phone with her three hours. Why? Because she's saying she's there in her house. She's standing on a chair with the rope on her neck. She's going to hang herself. So I'm trying to do everything, say everything I possibly can to prevent this suicide. Because this girl feels like she's gone too far. She's crossed the line. There's no way Christ can accept her. Finally, she hangs up the phone. I have no car. Cannot drive to her house. Right? You can call the police, but they're going to be like, well, what do you want us to do? How do we know this? We, we can stop by the house, but she doesn't answer the door. The police can't bust in the house. They don't have probable cause. So I called the elder. He says, I'm going to try to get to you as soon as he picks me up. We go to the house. She doesn't answer. Never heard from her again. To this day. When the elder dropped me off at home, I remember making a commitment to myself. I will never be in this situation ever again. If anyone ever calls me through failure, through discouragement because of sin, I will know the verses to say. Not only will I know the verses, Lord, I'm going to have experienced them and tested them in my own life. So that it comes out with conviction and not just sounding like academic knowledge. And I can share from my own failures, my own struggles. Because naturally, what grieved her heart is the fact of, why is it that I don't hate cocaine? Why is it that I'm still drawn to this thing after I've come to Christ? I know about heaven. I know about salvation. I know about prophecy. I know about this. But guess what? That doesn't change one iota of her draw to cocaine. And it bothers her. But you see, what I didn't understand then that I understand now is, that's a supernatural work. You can't make yourself hate sin. You can't make yourself naturally at enmity with the devil. Only Christ can do that. God says, I will put enmity. We have to recognize that right here in this verse, right, there is laying into the dust of the glory of men. Just when you thought you were a good person, this just in. You are not naturally drawn to righteousness. You actually have no problem with the devil. That is our natural state. It is the grace of God that you and I are not submitted to the power of demons this morning. It is the grace of God that you actually sinned and were able to get up and run to Christ and go to him in prayer and contrition. Because the devil wasn't able to hold you in his control. Listen, when we sin, he has every right. But because of the mercy of God and God says, I'm going to do for you what you can never do for yourself. So the very fact that I even feel guilt is very proof positive that Christ is working in my life. And therefore, we have to pray on this very morning that if I really want to experience righteousness by faith, I need to go to Christ and say, Lord, give me enmity. Lord, give me hatred. Put it in my life. Listen, righteousness isn't just about love. It's also about hatred. And God doesn't just hate your sin. He doesn't just hate the embarrassing sins. He hates all sin. Amen. Amen. And we need to come to God and say, Lord, I want a heart like Christ's heart. And guess what Christ's heart is like? He hates every sin. Small, big, wide, often, frequent, once in a while. He hates it all. That's the sin that he hates. But the problem is we only hate the ones that get us in trouble. But Christ is saying, I'm talking about the sins that you're planning to do tonight when you finish. I'm talking about the sins that you kind of give a Sabbath, right? You know, the devil lets you rest for 24 hours. There's stuff we're already planning tomorrow, already planning this week. Yep, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to watch this. I'm going to go eat this. I'm going to go da-da-da with who I want, with where I want, when I want. It's in the back of our minds right now, but we have to make sure we put on the face so people know we're a good seven-day Adventist because we came to church. We're at ECYC. I'm on the e-com, so I can't be dressing like this when I come to ECYC, but I know how I dress during the week. I've seen it too many times. I remember, man, <laughs> one time, you know, I was dating this girl, and I was, like, canvassing. Came in to surprise her. I was like, you know what? I'm going to drive an hour and a half, go see her, right, surprise her at her house. <laughs> Sometimes you just need to surprise your girlfriend. Rolled up to her apartment, right? As I'm approaching the door, I'm like, man, I hear some loud music. I'm thinking, man, her neighbors are just like jamming out right now. 
Get in, right? Walk down. It's her apartment. Blaring music. Hit the corner, there she is, dancing around the apartment covered in jewelry. Necklaces, bracelets, everything. Earring, I mean, I'm talking about pounds of jewelry. She saw me in the doorway, right? You can imagine, her heart stopped. My heart stopped too. I was like, man, what happened to my girlfriend? <laughs> I think I must be in the wrong apartment. <laughs> we literally sat in silence for 45 minutes, didn't say anything to each other. Then I just left. Literally, I mean, there was, I couldn't, I literally didn't have the words. Like, I was completely in shock. Because this is what's presented to me. We know how to look pretty for the camera. So that's why I remember when I started traveling globally, me and Jesus had to have a talk. And the Lord sat me down and said, Sebastian, listen, you travel the world, you don't consider any woman outside of the country. I said, listen, you go to preach for two weeks in Rwanda, any girl can be righteous for two weeks. Oh, yeah, he's in town. And then, of course, every time you go, they want to tell, oh, he's Pastor Braxton. He's single and uh, eligible. Amen. It's not good for a man to be alone, Pastor. <laughs> We're laughing because we do it. It's the truth. <laughs> then you're shaking hands after your sermon. Praise, Brother, where are you eating Sabbath? This, You know, you should come meet my daughter. No, I think I'm going to eat here at the church. Thanks. <laughs> it's the truth. This woman came to me one time in a church. I was pre- I'm not going to say where. This girl, this woman came to me and said, Sebastian, will you wait for my 16-year-old daughter? 16. I'm like, one more time. You want me to wait for your daughter? Yeah, wait till she turns 18, then you can marry my daughter. I said, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to disappoint you on that one. She's like, no, I mean, at least pray about it. These are seven-day Adventists. Listen, when you travel the church, you get to see a lot of interesting things. But it is the point that I'm sitting down with Christ and Christ's like, Sebastian, if she's out of the country, she's off limits. I don't care how pretty she is. I don't care how godly she is. I don't care if she was organizing the event, gave her blood to fund it. Doesn't matter. I would meet them. I'd say, wow, I'm inspired by you. She's a nice girl. But as soon as I hit that plane... Delta Airlines, please make sure your seatbelts are fastened and your tray tables are in an upright and locked position. She was gone as soon as the plane took off. Not an option. Why? Because I cannot know for sure. So people are talking about, Brother Sebastian, there's no men in the church. There's no girls either. I said, just because you have numbers doesn't mean you have quality. And I'm not single because I couldn't get married. I was single because I'm not just marrying anybody. But you see, this is what I'm talking about. We must accept the fact that we love sin. We don't love all sin, right? We all have our sin that does so easily beset us. And the Bible says in Genesis 3.15, from the very first gospel sermon that was preached, according to Sister White, the gospel is about restoring hatred where it was lost. We need to be praying this morning, Lord, give me enmity. Because we tolerate things we shouldn't be tolerating. We allow things we shouldn't be allowing. And I'm not talking in other people. I'm talking about ourselves. We have this thing in communication we call self-talk. And a lot of times when you're counseling people through self-talk, what you realize is people tell themselves things they would never take from someone else. So this girl will sit down, you know, I was in England one time and she was like, you know, I just don't feel like I'm beautiful and that any guy would ever want me and her boyfriend was mistreating her and all this kind of stuff. And I'm listening to her talk, right? You know, I'm really ugly and I'm not very intelligent. And I'm thinking, so if I sat down right here and I told you everything you're saying to yourself, I say, you know, you're very ugly. You're not intelligent. Um, you're really not useful to the church. I don't even know why you exist, like. If I said it to you, this is what she's saying to herself. I said, how would you react? She was like, I'd be angry. Why? You're the one telling yourself the same thing. So why are you not angry with yourself? So therefore, take your trust out of yourself and put it in Christ. Amen. That is the reality. Lean not on your own understanding. 
This how you see yourself. Thanks for letting us know. In the trash. Now let's focus on what Christ thinks of you. That's what we need to focus on. That's where our faith needs to be. And I need to recognize that in my heart, I am not opposed to sinfulness. I'm not opposed to evil. I'm not opposed to wrongdoing. I'm not opposed to going off on people in the parking lot. I'm not opposed to, you know what, I'm going to get one over on you. We are not opposed to those things. We're not opposed to abusing power. And therefore, let's not kid ourselves thinking that, you know, all all of a sudden I'm just going to, you know, sometimes people will try to come up with these things, right? They'll say, well, (laughs) I'm going to I'm going to do this. I I was dating this girl. Same girl, actually. (laughs) I don't want to say this girl like I had like all these relationships. (laughs) My wife would be like, why are you saying that? (laughs) But same girl. And I remember we're having issues with physical boundaries, right? So you come together and, you know, I would, <laughs> it was so stupid. You come to, you know, we come to my apartment or her apartment. We sit down and we start saying, you know, all right, we're going to start with a Bible study and prayer, right? And as soon as the Bible study prayer was over, we start violating boundaries, kissing, petting, all this kind of stuff. Uh, then we afterwards, right, we're repenting. Lord, we're so sorry. You know, this didn't happen, right? So the next time we say well, we're going to read the Bible and we're going to read Spirit of Prophecy, a whole chapter. Great controversies, right? Those are long chapters. By the time you're done with that, you ain't even thinking about sin. That's what you thought. Then you come, read the Bible, read all the chapter of great controversy, violate your boundaries. Then the next time we said, okay, we're going to read the Bible, read a chapter of Spirit of Prophecy, and we're going to have a season of prayer. And guess what? Then we violated our boundaries. I sat down with my spiritual mother and I was telling her, I said, you know, mom, I'm having these struggles, you know, with my girlfriend. She looked at me. She started laughing. She said, did it ever occur to you? Maybe you just shouldn't be alone. Amen. Because I don't hate sin. She says, if you're serious about sin, you will make it impossible for it to happen again. Christ says, listen, if your eye causes you to offend, is an eye a bad thing? It's not a bad thing. If your eye causes you to offend, what should you do? Pluck it out, but don't stop there. Put it in the jar. Cast it away from you. But you know what we do? We pluck it out, put it in the jar. Put it on the shelf. You know, uh, it's not bad. It's an eye. There's nothing wrong with a relationship with a seven-day Adventist. Amen? Nothing wrong with that. But put that on the shelf. So when I, you know, it's not bad. I don't have to get rid of it. No. Pluck it out. And the Bible says, cast it from you. It'd be better for you to enter into life with one eye than for your whole body to perish. But you see, we take out the eye. We want to put that thing on the shelf. Make it look nice in the jar. We can access it whenever we feel like it, you know, because there's nothing wrong with being alone with your boyfriend and your girlfriend. Stop kidding yourself. You do not have enmity. That's the hardest part. And it makes sense why it's one of the first promises. Because we think we love righteousness and we hate sin, but we don't. And it doesn't make sense that man would degrade in sin unless he loved it. How would he get worse and worse if he hated sin? He wouldn't get worse. He hates it. No, he doesn't hate sin. He loves sin. He doesn't like the effects. Doesn't like the guilt. Doesn't like the embarrassment. Doesn't like the shame. But he has no problem with sin. That's why someone got up here and said sin doesn't feel good. Yes, it does. We wouldn't do it if it didn't. I tell people all the time, have you ever wondered why everything that's healthy for you doesn't taste good? People's like, that's not true. I'm like, listen, if carrots tasted like donuts, we'd be very healthy. Am I telling the truth? It's the truth. And if donuts tasted like, you know, Brussels sprouts, we'd be like, yeah, nah, Dunkin' Donuts is closed down for business. But the very fact of the matter is you wouldn't be having people in obesity and all these issues unless it tasted good. It's no different in our spiritual life. If it was not pleasurable, if it did not taste good, we would not be consuming it. 
I said, for all the guilt that I've sat down with young men about pornography and masturbation, the bottom line is the reason why you're addicted is because it's pleasurable. Point blank, period. We're going to get over that. So I'm sitting out at academy and they're saying, you know, we got these group of boys. They're struggling with pornography, masturbation in the dorm rooms at the academy, Adventist Academy. And the chaplain and the principal and the president of the school are sitting down with me saying, Brother Scott, can you help us? Because I preached a message on the grace of God. And the kid was convicted. So we sit down in the office, right? And it's like, well, you know, he really wants to give it up and all this kind of stuff. I said, listen, man, the first thing you need to tell yourself, stop lying to yourself. Stop lying to you. You don't want to give it up. You need to accept that. This is you, who you are right now. This ugly person that you're ashamed of to be in the presence of the pastor and confessing these kind of things and to the principal and to the person over here and saying the chaplain. And you're like, I can't believe I'm saying these things out loud in front of these people. That person right now that you feel that's you without Christ. This is you. Any desires of goodness did not come from you. So I said, the first thing that needs to happen is you need to pray that God helps you to hate sin, helps you to hate pornography, helps you to hate masturbation. That's what you need to pray for, because right now you have no enmity with it. You have no problem doing this. And I said, the very fact that it's easy should have communicated that to you a long time ago. And you should have gotten rid of all forms of technology. Immediately. That's what should have happened. I tell people all the time. I remember years ago, the first time in my life I ever accessed pornography. I went to my wife and I said, babe, I want you to have the passwords to all of these things. I can't access them unless you're in the room. She looked at me. She said, are you sure? I said, I'm 100% sure, including Facebook. So my wife's like, okay. So if I come home to use Facebook, she has to log in. And she's sitting right there. Can't access it from work. Can't access it on the plane. Can't access it overseas. Can't access it in a hotel. And people say, well, why would you? I say, look, I'm not doing because I have a problem. I'm doing because I don't want one. I'm not waiting until I'm there stuck, you know, masturbating in some hotel room all over the world before I come back and say, oh, I need help. You knew it the first time. You needed help. I'm not even trying to go down this road because I know where it's leading me. But for many of us, we look and say, oh, I'm all right. You know, that was a one time. No, man, do not play with sin. We have a saying on the streets. It's called, it's not a game. That is a street saying. It is not a game. The devil is not playing with you. It seems innocuous. It seems so nice. It seems so easy, right? I said, many times, sinners sound like smokers, right? I can quit anytime. <laughs> we all know it's not true when it comes to cigarettes, but we think it's different when it comes to sin. Oh, I can quit anytime. Really? In the words of C.S. Lewis, you never know how bad you are till you try to be good. Just sit down and tell yourself right now when you leave this room, oh, yeah, I'm never going to do this sin again. See how that goes. I'm never going to do this thing again. The next thing you know, when you find yourself in the temptation and you find yourself in that struggle, you're thinking, how did I get to this place? Remember these words from Christ. I will put enmity. The answer is not try to make yourself hate women. The answer is not let me get rid of all technology. Because listen, if you really want to sin, you'll find a way. I can tell you that right now. Apartment buildings have free computers. It's the truth. People will go, oh, I'm going to find a way. And I remember I was staying at one apartment complex, and every time I would use the, the computer there, it would always have signs and stuff. Do not access pornography. Do not do this. Why do they have those signs there? Because some brother who's married with kids is going to that computer, which is accessible 24 hours a day to access what he wants to see. Because if we really want to sin, you're going to find a way. The only problem is we got to turn that around <laughs> and change that determination from sin, right? Like Saul to Christ. And say, my determination is not to get out of this situation. My determination is not to clean myself up. My determination is to run to Christ as fast as possible. Take that one amen. amen. That's the truth. 
Don't wait to repent. Don't wait to do this. Don't just go straight to Jesus immediately. Run to him. The Bible says the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it. They don't walk. They don't even jog. They run. They run to it and are safe. And are safe. When they trust in the Lord. Listen, I want you to know this morning that Christ has made provision (laughs) in every facet of every person's struggle and sin. Jesus knows that we're drawn to evil. The Bible says he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but flesh. And the text presents God not as a God who comes and says, the very first thing God says when Adam and Eve sinned was not that you're condemned. The very first thing he said was, I'm going to give you enmity. Amen. That's who God is. God is saying, listen, when you fall, when you make the mistake, when you're in that moment and you have failed the Lord, His first response is to talk to the devil and say, look, I promise you, I'm going to put enmity between you and her, between you and him. That's what I'm going to do. Before he goes to Adam and says, hey, curse is the ground for your sake. That is not the first words out of God's mouth in failure. The first words out of God's mouth is, where are you? Why are you far from me? God is looking for us. And if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. When your child misbehaves, that's the time when you want to talk to your child. Am I telling the truth? Soon as a child messes up, you're looking for the child. We need to sit down and talk. What did you do? What happened? Why did you do this thing? That's why we say children misbehave to get attention from their parents. Because when a child is misbehaving, that's when you want to talk to the child. So as God looks at us and he sees us disobeying, straying away from his will doing things that are harmful to us and to others. That's the time when Jesus is looking for us. And when he comes, his first words are not, because you did this. His first words are, I'm going to help you get out of this. Amen? I'm going to help you get out of this mess. I want you to think for a moment about your mess. I want you to think about your mess. And maybe it's a mess you come to Christ about often, or maybe it's the one you're afraid to come to Jesus about at all. Because you actually believe in your heart you'll never be free. We just give ourselves over to say, this is just what I will do. This is how I am. This is my personality. We try to use all kinds of excuses. But righteousness by faith removes every excuse. (laughs) Because he is provided on every side. You come and tell Jesus why you can't be saved. He's going to laugh in your face. Say, oh, I already provided for that. So you tell me why this particular sin, this particular aspect of your Christian experience cannot be overcome. And all I'm going to do is take you back to Christ and righteousness by faith. Take your mess. And someone needs to come to Jesus today so that Jesus can tell them, I'm going to get you out of this mess. Neither do I condemn you. And I could condemn you. But God did not send his son into the world to condemn. Christ comes to us. He calls us today that we might be saved. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. I want to make an invitation for at least one.
to come to this altar right here and say, Lord, I'm coming to bring my mess. And I know what you're going to tell me when I make it to the front of this room. And I kneel at this altar. Jesus wants to say to you this morning, I'm going to get you out of this mess. I just need you to surrender. I need you to let go of this belief that it will never change. That you'll never overcome. And I need you to accept that you like this thing. And you don't want to let it go. So is there anyone here that the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart? I want you to come to this altar right now, right here. And Christ is saying, bring your mess. And I promise all I'm going to tell you is I'm going to get you out of this mess. I'm going to help you get out of this mess. Come. Wherever you are, wherever you are, just come. Christ says, I'm going to get you out of this mess. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. You're not coming, you need to be praying. That the ones that Jesus is calling, come. Because this is the moment for some people. People are going to leave this altar and they're going to leave free. They're going to leave understanding this is my burden and this is Christ's burden. I just need to walk with him. Anyone else? Christ says, bring your mess. And all I'm going to tell you this afternoon is I'm going to get you out of this mess. That's my first response. Jesus says, I'm going to get you out of this mess. I'm going to do for you that which it is not in your power to do for yourself. And he says, I promise. And I can't lie. (laughs) I can't lie. Anyone else? The Holy Spirit has touched your heart. And you want to come and say, Lord, I'm bringing my mess. And I just want to hear you say to my heart, I'm going to take you out of this mess. I'm going to get you out of this. Those who have come, if you would kneel with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the truth of the word of God. Father, we thank you that you already knew from the very beginning, from the very first sinner, that we've lost our hatred for that which is wrong. Lord, that sometimes we pursue things that ought not to be. Lord, that we are satisfied with base desires and broken cisterns which can hold no water. And Lord, we're kneeling here because we sense your spirit calling us to bring our mess to you. And as we come, Lord, and as we have failed you, we're kneeling here because we want to hear those words to our own hearts, the same message you gave to Adam and Eve. That when we sin, your first audience is not with us, but with the devil. And it is your commitment to give us hatred towards him and towards the works of the devil. And Lord, we first pray that you would put enmity in our hearts. Father, we despise the fact and it pains us to see how much we love that which is wrong, that which is sinful. And we're just praying, Father, that you would do a supernatural work in our lives. And Lord, that you would crush the devil underneath our heels, that serpent. Lord, we also pray that you would speak to our hearts just now. And Father, that we would hear you saying to us, I'm going to get you out of this mess. And Lord, that we can trust in Christ. And that we will find that it is sweet to trust in Jesus. This is our prayer. And we offer this prayer from our hearts. 
In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.